Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I would ask that you all silence your cell phones so that it doesn't ring in the, in the middle of the presentation. Um, today's event is the 14th in our speaker series, Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Uh, if you would like to watch this event uh Later, or watch any of the previous events, it's available at heritage.org forward slash free dash markets or on the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. Um, <clears throat> the next event uh, after this one will be on April 4th. Jason Brennan, who is Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, We'll speak on the subject of magic socialism versus real capitalism. Our speaker today is Paul Larkin. His subject is the framers' view of property. Paul is the senior legal research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's held this position since September of 2011. Previously, he was at the U.S. Department of Justice from 1984 to 1993 where he served as the assistant to the Solicitor General and argued 27 cases before the United States Supreme Court. He was also an attorney in the Criminal Division's Organized Crime and Racketeering Section. He served as counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee and head of the Crime Unit for Senator Warren Hatch, who at the time was the panel's chairman. He worked in the Environmental Protection Agency from 1998 to 2004, as a special agent for criminal enforcement, eventually becoming special agent in charge and serving as acting director of the EPA Criminal Investigation Division. His honors include the Secretary of Defense Medal for Meritorious Civilian Service, which he received in 1994 for representing the military before the Supreme Court. In the private sector, he worked at two law firms in Washington, D.C., and as Assistant General Counsel for Verizon Communications from 2004 to 2009. He also clerked for Judge Robert Bork on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Paul is a prolific and talented writer. His work is clear, scholarly, and relevant. He's written about constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure, over-criminalization, in fact, been a national leader on that, Chevron deference, occupational licensing, the Congressional Review Act, and a host of other topics in a great many law review articles. His presentation today is based on his 2016 Marquette Law Review article, The Original Understanding of Property in the Constitution. He received his law degree in 1980 from Stanford Law, 
where he was a published member of the Stanford Law Review. In 2010, he received a master's degree in public policy from George Washington University. He also holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy from Washington and Lee University, where he graduated summa cum laude with honors in philosophy. There is one area where I part company with Paul, as I suspect do most of you. He's a lifelong New York Yankees and New York Giants fan. Now, difficult though it may be, I would ask that you overlook this obvious lapse in judgment and join me in, in uh, welcoming Paul to our podium. My mother always told me to be kind to those who are less fortunate, so I guess now I'm benefiting from that very good advice. I appreciate that. Listen, I want to thank David for the very kind remarks, as well as for giving me the privilege of speaking today as part of this series that he has. And I want to thank all of you for spending some time today to listen to me talk about the framers' view of private property. That is an evergreen subject but it is actually of particular importance now. For about a year, we have been lectured about the alleged virtues of socialism, despite the fact that we have a living example in Venezuela of what socialism tends to produce. No power, no food, no water, military rule, and people forced to buy used toilet paper. Perhaps the only redeeming virtue of the lectures that we have received uh, that have talked about the quote-unquote garbage that is our nation and our history is that the speakers are finally perhaps being honest about their intent and their design. Now, I hope to add to the discussion that David has so well and ably uh, commanded throughout the course of this year by talking about how the framers viewed the concept of property. And I would like to basically ask and answer three questions. First, how did the framers view private property? Secondly, where are we today? And third, since I think we are not in the same position that we were that the framers intended, how do we remedy that problem? Now, let me start with how the colonists viewed private property. In the 18th century, most Americans owned and lived off their own land. Agriculture was the principal industry. In fact, the opportunity to acquire land and grow and live off of it was a main reason why colonists left England as well as other nations to come to the United States. The land here was ample and it was available in fee simple, the type of land entitlement that gives you complete and full ownership of the property, unlike what you could have had in England, where all the fee simple title was in the crown, and you had best lived at the sufferance of the king and later parliament. The opportunity to come and live off the land and in vast amounts uh, was a tremendous attraction and a great value to the people who came here. Now, the best-known forms of property were, not surprisingly, personality and realty, but it also included incorporeal or future interests, such as easements, remainders, and reversions. 
But it was not limited to those sort of traditional forms that you would learn about in the early part of a course on property law in your first year of law school. Some colonists worked as self-employed artisans or shop owners, writers or inventors, and merchants or financiers in a thriving colonial economy. The shortage of hard currency in the colonies, in fact, forced merchants to rely on commercial paper in order to engage in trade. The result was that early Americans understood the value of items such as book credit, promissory notes, bills of exchange, mortgages, securities, loan certificates, maritime insurance, monetized public debt, and the lex muratoria, or law merchant. Accordingly, the founders' generation understood that property included the right to possess, use, enjoy, and dispose of whatever land, commodities, currency, or its equivalent a person owned. But there was even a more expansive understanding available to the framers, and they grasped it. They believed that property embraced far more than mere ownership of land or material goods. The term property included, quote, property which men have in their persons as well as their goods, unquote, which included included the right to the fruits of their labors. Blackstone, for example, concluded that under English law and custom, quote, every man might use what trade he pleased. Locke argued that every man has a property right, not only in himself, but also in whatever he acquired or produced through his own labor. Adam Smith believed that the right to pursue a lawful occupation was an essential element of the right to property and a reason why English law treated monopolies with such disdain. Lord Edward Cook, whose opinions were well known to the framers, was particularly critical of monopolies for the same reason. But the framers' notion of property extended even further than that. The right to property even embraced what John Locke deemed as a right to rights. Quote, property, even the concept of property as material accumulation, was not limited to the physical form in the 18th century. It included constitutional rights that English people counted among the attributes of liberty. Unquote. The result was that, quote, liberty itself was property possessed. Now, the framers' generation saw the protection of property as vital to civil society. For example, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, written by George Mason a month before Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence, made that point quite clearly. It provided that, quote, all men have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot, by any compact, deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Consider what James Madison, the author of our Constitution, thought about these views. As he once explained, the term property included more than realty and personality, reaching anything of value to someone, including legal rights. Quote, conscience is the most sacred of all property, unquote, he wrote with, quote, other property depending in part on positive law, the exercise of that being a natural and inalienable right, unquote. 
That is not a just government, nor is property secure under it, Madison explained, where the property which a man has in his personal safety and personal liberty is violated by arbitrary seizures of one class of persons for the services of the rest. Madison also went on to criticize a government that used, as he put it, arbitrary restrictions, exemptions, and monopolies to deny to part of its citizens that free use of their faculties and free choice of their occupations, which not only constitute property in the general sense of the word, but are the means of acquiring property strictly so-called. Madison explained in detail his view that property was a, in his words, a human right. He made that point in a 1792 essay published by the National Gazette. In his words, quote, the term property in its particular application means that dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in the exclusion of every other individual. In its larger and juster meaning, it embraces everything to which a man may attach a value and has a right, and which leaves to everyone else like advantage. In the former sense, a man's land or merchandise or money is called his property. In the latter sense, a man has property in his opinions and free communication of them. He has a property of particular value in his religious opinions, and in the profession and practice dictated by them. He has a property very dear to him in the safety and liberty of his person. He has an equal property in the free use of his faculties and free choice of the objects on which to employ them. In a word, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. Unquote. Now, the natural rights and social compact theories familiar to the framers presumed that the right to life, liberty, and property existed independently of positive law. 18th century common law and political theory reflected that assumption. The founders also believed that liberty and property were, quote, inextricably related, unquote, and that each one was as valuable as the other. Professor Gordon Wood, perhaps the dean of American early legal history, has put it this way. 18th century Whiggism had made no rigid distinction between people and property. Property had been defined not simply as material possessions, but, following Locke, as the attributes of a man's personality that gave him a political character. That a state or substance which a man has and possesses, exclusive of the right and power of all the world beside him. If it had thought of generally in political terms as an individual dominion, a dominion possessed by all politically significant men, the people of society. Property was not set in opposition to individual rights, but was of a peace with them, unquote. Now, the founders believed that property was the guardian of every other right. It also had an instrumental purpose. And that protection of property was both critical to the enjoyment of individual liberty and central to the new American social and political order. As one scholar has noted, anyone who studies the revolution must notice at once 
the attachment of all articulate Americans to property. Liberty and property was their cry, not liberty and democracy. That point was heard throughout the colonies before the revolution. The twin theme of threatened liberty and property therefore recurred in hundreds of political statements made between 1764 and 1776. And the cry, liberty and property, became the motto of the revolutionary movement. In the minds of the framers, property rights were indispensable to the success of the new enterprise, given its close association with liberty, and liberty supplied the means to collect property, to obtain the rights and the property in those rights and the rights to property that men enjoyed. John Adams, for example, believed that property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. Laws that threatened the security of property were for him subversive of the end for which men prefer society to the state of nature, and so subversive of society itself. James Madison, as I mentioned, was a particularly vocal advocate for the value of private property. Writing in The Federalist, Madison stated, quote, government is instituted no less for the protection of property than the persons of individuals. At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Madison said that the, quote, the primary objects of civil society are the security of property and public safety, unquote. Now, Madison did not stand alone. As I said, John Adams believed that property was essential to a civil society. So, too, did Alexander Hamilton. He believed that, quote, the one great object of government is personal protection and the security of property. Governor Morris, a member of the Convention of 1787, agreed with Madison and Hamilton and Adams. As he remarked in Philadelphia, quote, life and liberty are generally said to be more valuable than property. An accurate view of the matter, however, would nevertheless prove that property is the main object of society, unquote. According to St. George Tucker, who published the first American analysis of Blackstone's commentaries, quote, the rights of property must be sacred and must be protected. Otherwise, there could be no exertion of either ingenuity or industry, and consequently nothing but extreme poverty, misery, and brutal ignorance. Populations grew and cultures developed and prospered, scholars have noted, only in free states where men could enjoy the fruits of their labor, art, and initiative. And in this regard, let me say that the Heritage Foundation's annual analysis of economic and political freedom seems to show that we are continuing on in that same path. Where there is economic freedom, there will be political freedom. Where you lack the one, you will see an absence of the other. Now, the bottom line is that the framers deemed property to be both inherently valuable and essential to civil society and successful government. Stanford University professor Jack Rakoff summarized 
the attachment of property as, quote, a value that all Americans shared. As he put it, quote, property was one of the strongest words in the Anglo-American political vocabulary. John Locke had grounded an entire theory of government and the right to resist tyranny on that concept of property, which he did in his second treatise of government. But Locke only gave philosophical rigor to a belief that already permeated Anglo-American law and politics. For Locke, as for his American readers, the concept of property encompassed not only the objects that a person owned, but also the ability, indeed the right, to acquire them. Just as men had a right to their property, so too they held a property in their rights. Men did not merely claim their rights, but also owned them. And their title to liberty was as sound as their title to the land or to the tools which they earned their livelihood. Furthermore, property was a birthright, a legal entitlement, and material legacy that one industrious generation transmitted to another, unquote. Remember this as well. The colonist decision to break from England was different in character from contemporary revolutions. The American Revolution was not an early version of the French or Russian revolutions, one in which the proletariat sought to jettison a privileged class-based system in favor of a new legal, social, and political order. Unlike the fall of the Berlin, excuse me, Berlin Wall in 1989, the revolution did not signify the end of a long period in which the government had denied the public any opportunity to enjoy private property. On the contrary, the colonists enjoyed private property under English law and believed that the English constitutional government was the freest in the world. The American Revolution was a rebellion fought to preserve the rule of law and to preserve the right to private property enjoyed by the framers' generation. It was not a revolution to obtain those rights in the first instance. Now, that brings me to question two. Where are we today? The concept of property, what John Locke termed a component of life, liberty, and property, or as Thomas Jefferson put it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, has grown over time. The concept of property originally embraced real and personal and financial property, as well as the interests that people have in the law. Those interests, of course, the former, are still deemed property today. We have also seen the Supreme Court add to the list of property items such as welfare benefits, academic tenure, and other items created by positive law that would have been unknown to the framers. Yet there is a major difference between the framers' understanding of property and ours. The difference stems from the fact that life, liberty, and property are no longer deemed to have a common origin. The framers believed that like life and liberty, property was a natural right that every man possessed, not by virtue of positive law, but as a gift from God. That understanding of property 
has now vanished. Today, property is now seen as merely a creature of positive law. That positive law, by the way, does not include the Constitution itself, even though that document prominently uses the term property. As the Supreme Court explained in 1972 in Board of Regents versus State Colleges versus Roth, property interests, and note, of course, are not created by the Constitution. Of course, perhaps being a way of trying to not explain why property interests, whose term shows up in the Fifth Amendment, does not have a source in the Constitution itself. Now, what is the result of that? The result is that the state may redefine property interests. Sometimes in the case of the pursuit of honest labor, the government can define that right almost out of existence through occupational licensing laws. Our different contemporary understandings of property and liberty are of considerable importance to public policy, therefore, because constitutional law now treats them in materially different ways. The government may restrict the exercise of some liberty interests, at least to some extent, and at least temporarily, as long as the government has a legitimate justification, which it must prove in court. In other cases, the government is quite limited in the regulations it can impose. In those instances, the government may restrict a liberty interest only to serve public goals of the highest order, and even then only to a limited extent and perhaps just for a limited time, if at all. By contrast, since the New Deal, the Supreme Court has permitted the government to regulate private property for reasons and in ways that would have astonished the framers. The government can prohibit individual farmers from growing wheat for their own home personal consumption. The government can require a person to have a license to engage in a host of occupations that do not threaten the public health, safety, or welfare. And the government can use its eminent domain power to transfer land, including any homes atop that land, from one person to another simply because the new owner might develop the land in a manner that would allegedly benefit the community more in different ways. Because property rights trace their source only to some positive law, the government can regulate and often nullify those interests by a different positive law for almost whatever reason the government sees fit. The result has been to devalue the constitutional status of property and to construe the due process clauses in a quite one-sided, bifurcated manner. Now, how do we remedy this state of affairs? Let's start by returning to the text of the Constitution. That text hardly compels the current dichotomy between higher-level liberty and lower-level property. On the contrary, the text places property on a par with liberty and assumes that government officials, including judges, would afford them the same respect. That text has not changed since 1791. All that has changed is the value that the Supreme Court and the Academy present company excluded, have placed on property. Their interpretations, however, have a relatively recent origin.
property did not lose its original understanding until the 20th century, while liberty did not begin its current ascent until the 1960s. Since then, the haute monde of American political, legal, and intellectual society have often felt that the framers' concern with the protection of property was, to quote American history scholar Edmund Morgan of Yale, who was critical of the notion, as, quote, a rather shabby thing, and that the constitutional principles discussed from 1776 to 1787 were invented, as he put it, to hide the protection for property under a more attractive cloak. Now, that belief mistakenly seeks to impose 20th century redistributive economic policies on an 18th century document by denigrating any concern for property as being little more than the desire to constitutionalize protection for greed. Framers, however, were classically educated men who knew that Western civilization had highly valued property since Roman times. The Supreme Court should not deem itself free to ignore the framers' interests in protecting property, simply because the economy and society have materially changed over time. Why do I say that? We do not follow that approach elsewhere in the law. We do not abandon the copyright clause's protection for plagiarism of the written word just because the clause also protects photographs and films. We do not abandon the free speech clause's protection against prior restraints just because that clause also protects after-the-fact damages. We do not abandon the Fourth Amendment's protection against law enforcement officers rummaging through our homes, just because the amendment now also protects against the government rummaging through our cell phones. And we do not abandon the cruel and unusual punishment clauses protection against hideously painful criminal punishments, just because it also prevents the government from imposing unduly long prison terms. In other words, There is no neutral principle of constitutional law, to quote Herbert Wexler, that justifies disregarding the original understanding of some constitutional guarantees, such as property, but not all of them. Now, where does that leave us with these three points? First, President Donald Trump was spot on when he said that this country has never been socialist and has never been infected with the theoretical ills that socialism would bring. Private property is built into the American ethic, into the American dream, into American DNA, and is an integral component of our national charter. Second, history reveals that the framers venerated property rights both for its own sake and as a means of guaranteeing personal independence. Property was not simply realty or personally, but was one with liberty and was seen as a guarantee of the protection of the legal rights that people had. Third, the Supreme Court needs to relearn American history. The Supreme Court treats property as a poor relation, 
deserving of far less protection than life or liberty currently receive. The framers did not see it that way. They believed that neither liberty nor property could exist without the other. That belief, moreover, was nothing new to any 18th century English subject, whether he lived in London or in Williamsburg. Anglo-American traditions, customs, and law held that property was an essential ingredient of the liberty that the colonists had come to enjoy from Massachusetts through Georgia and must be protected against arbitrary government interference. The Supreme Court has forgotten the status that property had for the framers. Reminding the court may help lift property out of the basement to which it has been relegated by contemporary American constitutional law. Thank you. All right. Uh, we have time for questions. I would ask that you wait for the mic and then state your name and any institutional affiliation. We'll start with David Azarad right here. No. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Can you explain how intellectual rights uh, feed into this? Because th that seems to me to be a, an area where there's even disagreements on the right about how to think about intellectual property. Let me say several things. First, intellectual property is a form of property that was known to the framers. It clearly was something that existed under the common law and became regulated uh, under federal law because Congress uh, passed legislation pursuant to the clause in Article One, Section 8 that authorized them to create copyrights and patents. So it was clear that the framers believed that intellectual property had a legitimate place in the pantheon of property and that the rights you would obtain from common law, from statute, and perhaps even from the Constitution itself uh, were entitled to respect. What I find interesting, however, is that uh, what you will often see uh, in many circles is that uh, intellectual property in the form of uh, what people write by many people who denigrate the property that the average person owns uh, would be seen as being of far greater value. In other words, what uh, the New York Times says uh, is entitled to far greater weight the, than any real or personal property that people own. Uh, and I think there is a, uh, an explanation for that, uh, not a good one, but I tend to think people in those circumstances are trying to make sure that what they do gets better protected than what uh, the average assembly line worker uh, at a Ford plant has. This gentleman over here. Gabriel Greenspan, an intern with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So I was interested when you were talking about how the founders would have recognized essentially what we would consider to be human rights, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech as property. And I guess my question is I think most people would, would recognize that the average person would 
would view their religious or political beliefs, their, their soul, so to speak, as incomparably more valuable than their money or or financial property. And so if you put those two things on a par, if you say that they both count as property, does that inherently mean devaluing what we now consider to be human rights by putting it on par with financial property? Well, let me say, first of all, it's somewhat difficult to make um, not only cross-cultural but cross-temporal comparisons with the weight of something that we value today given the basis upon which we can work. When you're valuing something today, you're doing it at the margin based on the value of all the rights, all the guarantees, property, liberty, et cetera, that you had to start with. Uh, Treating uh, rights uh, back in the 18th century uh, as a uh, means of protecting the interests that people had uh, was an entirely reasonable way of going about it and treating property as an equally valued right was an entirely uh, reasonable way of going about it because, for example, there was no social safety net. You know, it, it wasn't simply a matter of, as John Smith said, those who do not work do not eat. It was just a matter of there was plenty of property and plenty of opportunity even for people that didn't want to uh, engage in agricultural pursuits to go into cities and work and earn living. Um, so you had to be able to uh, uh, make a living by earning a livelihood in some form or other. A lot of the value that we put on uh, other sorts of more theoretical guarantees today, we can do that only because uh, people are already earning that livelihood or are able to take advantage of a social safety net. I think, therefore, it's a mistake for us to say because uh, either civil rights or universal human rights, et cetera, are more valuable today that we can somehow criticize the framers' generation for trying to place property on a par with those. They placed them on a par with those because they saw that was the only way for the civilization and people not only to survive but to progress. Uh, And so I, I think it's difficult to try to say that they were wrong because they didn't have today's values in mind. They had in, in mind the values that were relevant in that era and that they had to protect in order for the society to continue to grow and continue on to the present. I might, Roger Pilon will be next, but I might add one other thing is if you look at the actual socialist experience where there's not private property, where newspapers and other aspects of civil society are controlled by the state, all your other liberties end up going by the wayside as well. Private property is is critical to not only prosperity, but also to a a thriving, free uh, civil society and a thriving, free country. Roger. I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Um, Paul, I want to ask you about uh, regulatory takings. Uh, If we take uh, Madison's um, argument in the National Gazette of 1792, uh, whereby a man is said to have not only a right in his property, but a property in his rights, and therefore in the uses that go with that property. Uh, And then we come to a straightforward regulatory takings case like um, Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Council. We have to have some kind of an explanation for Justice Scalia's argument in that case that uh, 
Lucas was entitled to compensation only if there were a complete wipeout. It seems to me that Scalia got it exactly upside down, that if all those uses that were wiped out by the statute uh, are part of the property, are properties of, uh, of the owner, then, uh, it, then a taking takes place from the very first use that is taken, not only after the last use uh, is taken so that you get the wipeout rule that Scalia gave us. What do you think was animating Scalia with respect to his opinion in that case? There are multiple points I could make in, in that response. To, let me start at the back end of what you said. Uh, it may have just been as simple as trying to get a majority. Uh, uh, Frank Easterbrook, back in the 80s, wrote uh, an article entitled Ways of Criticizing the Court, in which he went through in detail and explained that uh, uh, it's oftentimes difficult to uh, justify criticizing uh, the court for being uh, somewhat incoherent in its opinions when what you're trying to do is uh, corral a majority uh, of people who don't look at the problem the same way and have to include things in an opinion that don't necessarily reflect the author's own entirely uh, pure view of the process. So it may just have been that simple. Um, but part of the uh, a deeper problem with that whole area of the law comes from uh, takings law as well. Traditionally, uh, the idea of a taking uh, was that it had to be for a public use. Uh, that is either used by the public or used by the government for the benefit of the public. You could take private property and build a fort. You could take private property and build a park. Uh, what you wound up seeing over time was effectively taking something away but not giving it to anybody else in, in particular because what you were trying to do was prevent property from being used in certain ways. Now, doesn't mean uh, – what I'm saying is not that there can't be regulation of property. For, there is regulation of property of common law in the form of nuisance law. You couldn't use your property in a way to damage somebody else's. Right. But – and I'm not saying that uh, you were disagreeing with that. Uh, but in those circumstances, what was happening was the regulation was for the benefit of the public as a whole. We have oftentimes lost sight of that. Uh, John Eastman wrote a uh, section of the Heritage Guide to the Constitution where he talked about uh, the need, uh, if you read the preamble right, to uh, or the uh, the tax and spend clause, to, to look at things as being for the benefit of the public rather than the benefit of some subset. Well, it, the, a lot of regulation is not for the benefit of the public as a whole. If you're regulating the benefit of the public as a whole, then even the party being regulated gets some benefit from it. I mean, that's why, for example, in measuring the amount of compensation due, you don't give somebody compensation for the lost personal value of their property. It's for only the real market value of their property. The reason is, if the taking is only for a public use, for the benefit of the public, then you benefit from that as well. And the Supreme Court in the Monongahela case said that. So uh, you also have a problem when you're dealing with regulation that the regulation uh, is oftentimes not for the benefit of the public as a whole. And therefore, what you're doing is benefiting one party rather than another and it amounts to just simply transferring property rights from one to another. Is the Supreme Court uh, ever going to move off that in the Lucas case? I hope so. Uh, 
I think, however, the problem the Supreme Court will have is trying to figure out some non-subjective way of drawing that line. If you draw a line that says you can't reduce property by 100% because it's a tantamount to taking it, it's easily applied. Once you get below 100%, then the problem is where do you draw that line? And the current court doesn't like drawing lines the same way in, under the Constitution that we do under negligence law by saying what's reasonable based on the facts. Hi. Excellent, Paul. Thank you. Michael Maybach with the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. I have a question having to do with taxation and property. Uh, historically, we've had a debate about inheritance tax or the death tax, as some people call it. But we now have a U.S. senator uh, from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, who said anyone has a certain uh, net worth of over a certain amount, we ought to be able to tax their net worth. Uh, what would the founders say about these questions of inheritance tax and even taxing net worth? The problem there comes from the use of the, the tax law in this regard. The framers would have understood that taxes were an inevitable part of society. Uh, I think that it was Holmes that later said taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. Uh, and so they understood that there would be instances where taxes are appropriate. At the same time, the framers would have thought you can't just take a bundle of money or a bundle or a parcel of someone's land and give it from A to B. So the theory uh, that probably would have uh, worked for them is if you're engaged in a productive activity of some type, uh, such as importing goods, you could be made to pay a certain amount in order to ensure that the government could inspect the goods. Uh, but once you got them into the United States and they came to a place of rest and time went by and you, you built it up, you wouldn't be able to reach back uh, 10 years later, say, and now impose a re-importation tax, because it's not a, an importation tax anymore. It's just a pure tax on wealth. Uh, you couldn't do that with respect to income until we passed a constitutional amendment permitting it. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, uh, there would be uh, people who think constitutionally, although people think anything constitutionally, uh, that there uh, is a particularly good argument in that regard. Uh, now, she was a law professor at Harvard. Uh, however, I, I it raises certain presumptions, not necessarily positive. That's right. Uh, but um, she's not in a classroom trying to lecture students. She's running for president. So uh, I think you have to take everything uh, viewed through that prism. This gentleman back here. John, this is. Since I mentioned your, you twice, this is where you get to say, Paul, you ignorant slut. No, no. I, I thought it was terrific. I'm going to ask for a copy of it and share it with my students. Um, I thought your, um, of John Eastman with the Claremont Institute and at Chapman University, I thought your, um, progression that we've, uh, added to the property rights and that doesn't require us to ignore the original, uh, was terrific. Um, but the new claims of property, seem to be different in kind than just adding more. The new property, the, the right to health care, the right to free housing, the right to free education. Um, and it really ties into the socialism discussion that you opened with, which is I can have, of course I have a right to a house, but I don't have the right to force Mr. Malcolm to build my house for me. That's 
undermining property rights. And I think teasing that out, I wonder if I'm right about that and tying that back into the socialism thing might, might be helpful. No, 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 no. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, even when you, we see the expansion of different property rights today, uh, it doesn't mean that the current doctrine treats all different types of property the same as every other. I mean, for example, there are some rights uh, that are deemed property. There are some property rights uh, that exist only with respect to whether or not the government has to follow certain procedures before they take them away from you. Uh, the government just can't willy-nilly take away food stamps. Uh, but the government isn't obligated to create a food stamp program to begin with. And they can cut the money in that food stamp program uh, by any percentage they want without being required to give someone an annuity so they can continue to receive income at the prior level. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't tried to uh, justify uh, this sort of very odd set of property rights, that you can uh, have a property right for protection against what is taken uh, by the government when they condemn your home, uh, but not for uh, what the legislature can do when they decide to impose new regulations. Uh, there isn't any unified field theory of property, at least that I've been able to figure out. There are three different branches of it. There's the procedural due process branch, there's the takings clause branch, and there is the legislative branch. Um, but what's happened is I think people are now trying to take what uh, we thought of as property in the context of uh, a taking, like taking land or taking your home, and say, well, the same sense of property now should be applied to the legislature and they should be required to provide us with whatever is necessary to maintain our home, to maintain our property, et cetera, or to give us that in the very first instance. So you're seeing this sort of sidestep occur, uh, and the Supreme Court cases, unfortunately, have lent themselves in this, sometimes to this. Any questions over there? Anybody over there? Because I can't see. Oh, um, no, but I thought there was someone. There, did John. John. Yeah. <clears throat> right here. I'm John Burlaw, also at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, like my colleague Gavi there, where I study uh, financial regulatory policy. And I'm the author of the forthcoming from St. Martin's Press, George Washington Entrepreneur, about his brilliance and innovations as a businessman, including the whiskey distillery and new types of crop rotation. So I really enjoyed your talk, uh, Paul, and, and you're so right that GW and the other founders were so much more sophisticated in finance than we give them credit for. I wanted to ask you to elaborate on something you said about, you know, we were uh, fighting, the framers were fighting, you know, to conserve, you know, what the British, British rule of law. And I mean, I think I agree with that, but there were, you know, the British were deviating from that. And I think on some areas on property rights, um, most, you know, the arbitrary quartering of British troops in homes, and I'm going to have things in my book about how mercantilism actually translated into direct regulation, like, like that there were bans on some manufactured iron goods that would compete with British uh, trade. So what areas of property rights, were property rights, do you think, an issue in the fight against the British, and in what areas, and what are the parallels to that today? If there are I think there were 
differences in the types of regulation that the framers took objection to. I think at the macro level, uh, with respect to mercantilism, they probably didn't have the same feeling of outrage that they did with respect to taxing. Uh, tax was, taxes were more direct. Uh, they were imposed uh, on people who were engaged in uh, legitimate forms of work, whereas part of the mercantile regulatory system uh, dealt with what also happened outside of the United States. I mean, what happened between England and uh, its colonies in the Caribbean. So I think to that extent, you know, mercantilism was a little bit different than the types of regulations and taxes that were imposed on the U.S., I think people, however, are entitled to say that what you have in terms of what Roger talked about, where the government goes too far, uh, oftentimes uh, is seen again today. I mean, and John made the same point when he was talking about people demanding rights to be given property. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a series of cases beginning in the 70s, uh, made clear that you can't just arbitrarily take away a person's welfare rights. But they also said, no one has a constitutional right to welfare. Uh, they later said you can't be arbitrarily kicked out of public housing, but they also said no one has a constitutional right to be given a home. Uh, the same issue later arose in the abortion context, where they imposed restrictions on when you can deny someone the right to obtain an abortion. But they said no government, federal or state, is required to fund abortion. Part of the problem in this area is once the term right is thrown in in this regard, uh, it is then used in virtually every other context where people want something. Uh, we're, we're told today that health care is a right. Uh, we're told today that all sorts of things are rights. The idea, I think, is more than anything else to get people comfortable and with the notion of combining these two very distinct uh, concepts so that they come to think that one naturally flows from the other. Uh, that's the problem we're seeing oftentimes today. People tend to think that X is a right because they've been told it over and over and over again, and there is a real problem there. Because if X is a right, then you're imposing a uh, corresponding liability or duty on others, which means you can therefore justify giving uh, A a right only by taking away some of B's rights. And that's a, a serious problem from a uh, political and social perspective even if not yet, at least from a legal one. Steve. Uh, Stephen, uh, Tax Foundation Emeritus. Uh, you mentioned that the Supreme Court might need to relearn some history. Are any of the current members of the Supreme Court um, cognizant of and sympathetic to the, the, the framers' initial uh, view on property? Uh, and are the people who are putting lists of prospective justices together from a conservative point of view, uh, are they paying enough attention uh, to the property rights angle? Well, on, on the latter, I, I don't know because they never asked me for my opinion. Uh, and I don't know to what extent uh, people have this on their radar screen. I just, just don't know. Uh, on the former, it seems to me the, the one current member of the court that cares most about history in deciding what uh, the Constitution means is Justice Clarence Thomas. He has frequently referred to history in trying to divine what different provisions mean. And so I think he is the, the principal one I would look to in this regard if you're hoping to see history have some renaissance 
in the Supreme Court's opinion. Other questions? David Ditch, Heritage Foundation. Um, are there particular historical moments that you would say led to a um, devaluing of the perceived value of property and economic liberty in America? I would say it's probably the combination of three events, but they're not particular points in time although there is overlap amongst them. Um, one is industrialization. The other is urbanization on a very large scale. And then the third was the Depression. What happened uh, as you saw people moving to cities to take factory jobs was uh, creation of allied industries, grocery stores, things and the like, so that people who had no property to grow their own foodstuffs would be able nonetheless to get it. Uh, and that was the consequence also of the development of railroads and the like, which could get foodstuffs from the Midwest to the uh, new, to the coasts in time for it still to be uh, consumable. Uh, but it was probably the combination of those two and the Great Depression that gave the uh, biggest impetus to government efforts to try to uh, regulate the problem and to fix uh, what was seen as a macroeconomic problem through uh, legislation uh, rather than through monetary measures. I think you put the three of those sorts of factors together and what you see pl uh, is uh, the combination of events have led people to just want the problem resolved regardless of how it gets resolved uh, and were more willing to accept restrictions on private property because of the terrible circumstances the nation was in during the Depression. Now, it wasn't the New Deal that solved the Depression. It was World War II. Uh, but nonetheless, it was the New Deal that led to the appointment of a very large number of people on the Supreme Court who reflected FDR's views, uh, social, legal, and political. And so I think you put those three elements together, you wind up seeing one explanation at least, a reasonable explanation, I think, for why we started seeing property being devalued. The Supreme Court just pushed it along even further. Any other questions? In that case, thank you very much for being here. And the next event will be April 4th. Jason Brennan.